Dawn of Mantis is brought to you by Redbeard Sound. Redbeard Sound provides music production, audio editing, and live sound engineering, and is where Dawn of Mantis records our podcast. You can find Sam's information on our website, dawnofmantis.com, or at redbeardsound.com. Extra, extra, Dawn of Mantis now has a merch store. There are t-shirts, long and short sleeve, as well as hoodies. Just go to dawnofmantis.com and click the t-shirt link. And while you're there, you can check out our Patreon. All our Patreon tiers have Discord benefit. This means you can join our text chat and even listen to our podcast live as we record it on Tuesday nights. Quiet your Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. But two brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Welcome to another episode of Dawn of Mantis. Um, you can find us online at www.dawnofmantis.com and also on Twitter at Dawn of Mantis. We have Discord, we have Patreon, we have all that good stuff. Check us out. We'd love to have you aboard. Joe, how's it going? I'm doing great. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good. Got all that out of the way early. Real quick. Well, yeah. no, not all the way. We've got an extra person in here with us. We've got Casey in studio with us tonight. Oh, hello. There you Oh, man, you got a good radio voice. a good radio yeah, voice. Yeah, that's, that's very you. good. Oh, damn. We just got put out of a job. Here, read these notes. <laughs> <laughs> You've been looking for that, for someone to do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, man, we are here for part three of our Buddy Holly series. And just to remind you guys again, we do have a companion playlist we've shared out on Twitter that goes along with these episodes. We're trying to put these tracks in here chronologically. So if you want to get on Spotify and check out some of these tunes we mention, uh, not all of them, but some of them, check it out. It's pretty cool. I listened to it the other day on my walk and uh, great songs. You picked a lot of really good songs, Joe. Who, who we got? Let's, let's, let's name drop a few of them. Okay. Just so uh, we're starting out with Jimmy Rogers going way back. Hank Snow, Woody Guthrie, Hank Williams, Marty Robbins, the oh. El Paso song. We listened to that last time. Yes, we did. Amazing track. Um, anyway. That's I don't, that's all I can say about that. Buddy Holly himself, whenever he was with uh, Buddy and Bob, yeah, Buddy and Bob, yeah, and then Little Richard, a couple oh. of Little Richard tracks. You keep knocking, but you can't come in. Come on now, we got Lucille keep a knocking. That's good stuff, Tutti Fruity, yeah, good stuff on there. It's a really good. We got one of those goddamn government listening uh, devices, Alexa, whatever it's called. We got one of those. We put it in the kitchen, and government uh, <laughs> listening. You device. will they do anyway on your phones, but. Uh, my daughter and me were in there making spaghetti, and I was like, the first thing I did with it, I was like, check this out, Lexi. And I was like, Alexa, play El Paso, Marty Robbins, volume up. And so we jammed out to Marty Robbins. What'd she say about that song? She'd probably heard it before, right? She's heard it many times. Uh, yeah, I always tell her this was your grandpa's favorite song, you know? I, yeah. I tell her that, and and obviously, we were all talking about it. kind of reminds us of all our granddads, Is it dads. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome that we, we can pass the torch, so to say, in a way. We could have our music, show it to them. They show us their music, and we hate it, but we don't act like we hate it. Hey. Uh, but, <laughs> hey uh, except, uh, for, except for Watermelon Sugar. Yeah, Watermelon Sugar. sugar. Ah. That, that's, a, that's a great track. It's like strawberries. <laughs> Not while I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's not good. Under the influence, and never sing that song to a man. <laughs> yeah. I know. I just you almost made my milk come out of my nose. <laughs> anyway, we all agree we like some Harry Styles, uh, but uh, some of the boy bands I can't get on board with it. It's just not my cup of coffee. But that's okay. It's okay because I play stuff for my. I actually made a playlist for my daughter Mariah, and I called it Mariah Grades. And then we played it on our way to somewhere, and I had her grade each song. So it was a, hmm. a bunch of stuff from when I was a kid. It's a fun little activity. That you is. should do that That's with your cool. kids. I'm going to try uh, that. She gave a lot of Ds and a lot of Fs. <laughs> but Peaches, uh, by the president yeah. of the United States, uh, she gave that an A+. plus. She loved that song. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I, there was a time in my life I hated that song, but then I kind of came around. So anyway, it was kind of, it's a neat little activity. You should try that with yeah, your kids. Yeah, I will. That's your Donna Mantis homework. Okay. Yeah. My daughter's on a... Uh, uh, 80s, 90s, more, maybe late 80s, early 90s country kick right now. Oh, okay, cool. So every time we're in the car, she'll put in, like we just talked about a while ago, When She Cries, Restless Heart, or like Seminole Wind. Or, oh my gosh. She's really One into that. One of my favorites ever right there. Yeah, she's really into that type of stuff You've right now. You've done well, sir. Yeah. Very good. Very yeah. good. And then I tell her, oh, I, you know, I bought that album when it came out, you know, in, in 89, you know, and she just doesn't care. This is like, you used the back in 89, I bought that album. <laughs> album? What's that? Why didn't you just download it? Well, it was cassettes. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it was cassettes back then. But and then there's a whole thing where you're just sitting there with your cassette in waiting for your song to come on so you can record it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've done that before. But then the damn DJ, like the <laughs> ra- the song over. starts and he's like, oh, have we talked about this on the podcast before? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because you were like, don't forget to come down to the <laughs> Methodist church this evening. At the, you know, I was like, shut up, man. I've talked about this before. I'll say it again, though. Um, since Sam's here and Casey. So I went to church one time and, and one of the guest pastors said, they had like a, a presentation on songs you shouldn't listen to. And they showed, I never heard that song, Jacob's Ladder by Huey Lewis. Step by oh, step. Oh, yeah. One by one. And he, he, he dissected the song, talked about how evil it was. Talking about the devil right there. I went straight home, requested it, and was ready with the play and record. Like, whenever he, you know, I got to have the song. This is an awesome song. It There's totally not backfired. One Huey Lewis song you should ever say don't listen to. <laughs> <laughs> They're all earworms. I had a buddy of mine, his mom, high, highly religious. I worked like all summer long mowing lawns and bought the cassettes in a pawn shop, used. Uh, Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion, and the uh, other one. Oh, yeah. And uh, I let him borrow those, and, and I was like, give me them tapes back, man. Like, Mom <laughs> threw them away. Oh! <laughs> you owe me! Yeah. I remember my sister one time lying to my mom, saying that an Aussie tape she had was a friend's. It was a friend's tape. I cassette. said that when my mom found a stack of nudie magazines under my bed. <laughs> I said, those are Seth's. I, they're not even mine, mom. That's gross. <laughs> but when you get older and you get married, I blame Seth. This, these are Joe's. Joe <laughs> yeah. brought those over. I'm going to tell him that he needs to keep the smut out of my house. I'm a married man. Hey, speaking of religion, though, man, I remember, and we'll get off it after this, but I remember like my pastor would say, if you listen to anything other than gospel music, it's like you're worshiping Satan. So I remember being a little kid and wearing out my Shenandoah tape, you know, listening to Sunday in the South and yeah. next to you, next to me. And I remember feeling like shameful. Like, did you have candles and a, a pentagram in your, in the <laughs> middle of your bedroom too, devil worshiper? I can't believe you, I, Joe. I remember feeling terrible. Like I, I was like, I hope no one finds out, you know, that I was listening to this. <laughs> what, about, what about church on the Cumberland road, man? See, come on. He's literally talking about going to yeah. a church. 
Yeah, but just the the feel of it felt like Satan. A secular. Yeah, secular. secular. That was the word. Secular yep. music. That's a bad word. That's secular music. We're going to have to bleep that word. He's literally singing about next to you, next to me. Ain't no place that I'd rather be. How in the hell's that devil? Yeah, but was he talking about being next to Jesus? No, <laughs> I submit he was not. So that is a sin, sir. <laughs> well, all right. You must repent. <laughs> okay, what do we have to today, Joe? What do we have? Well, uh, I don't want to... Did you listen to part one and two, and then you'll understand where I'm going to take off from right here. Because if you haven't listened to those, this is you're going to be like, what the hell? Yeah, we're not going to recap. No. You can go back if you want to hear it. By the fall of 1955, Buddy was getting slightly discouraged. He'd shared the stage with some of the biggest stars of the time, had sent out several demos, appeared on countless radio shows, and even played even more live shows. But stardom seemed to always just be out of reach. But that was about to change, or so he thought. Let me explain. In October of 1955, KDAV put together a show in Lubbock that was to headline Bill Haley and the Comets, or his Comets, who, by the way, had just changed the entire musical landscape with their massive hit, Rock Around the Clock, and country artist Jimmy Rogers Snow. Yeah, put Rock Around the Clock on there. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, too. And more importantly for Buddy, a Nashville talent agent named Eddie Crandall was traveling along with the show as well. As with most shows that came to Lubbock, Buddy and Bob got to open, and Eddie Crandall was pretty impressed. Then Crandall saw Buddy perform again two weeks later when the boys opened for Marty Robbins. I'm really name-dropping here. This time, Buddy performed both as a country act with Bob and Larry, but also as a solo act doing his rockabilly songs. So people got to see both sides of what he could do. Cool. When Crandall went back to Nashville, he wrote the boys' manager, Dave Stone, and said, and I quote, Dave, I'm very confident I can do something as far as getting Buddy Holly a recording contract. It may not be a major, but even a small one would be beneficial to someone who is trying to get a break. That would be really rare even today, by today's standards, to just do not completely different things, but I don't know. He's just doing like, you know, one thing at night and one thing at day. That's That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Because we've heard, I mean, if you listen to the playlist, the Buddy and Bob stuff was very much so like... You know, there's a tear in my beer. And then he comes out doing rockabilly stuff. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That's just how diverse he was. He continued and said, Marty Robbins also thinks Buddy has what it takes. So all we can do is try, okay? The next day, Crandall sent uh, Stone a telegram asking Buddy to cut four demos that could be sent to Nashville. And he added the note, do not change Buddy's style at all. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Because as... Casey, you might know sometimes... They change it now. Yes. <laughs> like, they're like, hey, we like what you do, but yeah. do all this. Change I mean, everything. Yeah. Do change it. Why'd you even sign me? You've probably been yeah. firsthand yeah. to some of that behavior. They would have probably changed his name. This <laughs> yeah. Buddy Holly, come yeah. on now. You're From now on, you're Ricky yeah. Star. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> Ricky Star. Yeah, I don't know where You're going to be going. a star. Oh, but I wanted to talk about Rock Around the Clock. Yeah. Holy shit. That, no, listen, that came out, it was recorded, I believe, in late 1953 and came out in 1954. So I want people to, if you ever get a minute, just listen to any other song from 1954 and then listen to Rock Around the Clock. Bill Haley and his comets cannot be given enough credit for what they did. Like, it is night and freaking day. And by the way, that guitar solo and rock around the clock that is just bananas that was a a session musician that just like came in john, just played by john banana yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the little known guitarist 
Johnny Bananas. Maybe change his name. <laughs> but he came in and was paid like 30 bucks for a one-hour session. And, the, and literally, it was that day, that session's like, we need a solo here. And he's like, oh, shit. Uh, and then he did that. Hmm. So anyway, that's just, I read a lot about that song when I was doing then this research. Back to the factory, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was it for him. It's just, it's crazy. So I want someone that's like, was like anti-Megadeth when it came out and said that it was the decline of youth to think there was somebody that w- did that to rock around the clock. Like, <laughs> yes, this devil's music. When Bill Haley and Bill Haley and his comments went over to, to Europe to tour and there were riots. They banned rock and roll in parts of Europe. This is all true. And that's like the first song I learned to play in band on the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> How could that cause a riot? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But kids up and before then was always just like, where we'll go walking down the street, you know, <laughs> holding hands and beating our feet. Bill, Bill Hellion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like something evil. It, it was almost like, I know they were making fun of it, obviously, but in Walk Hard... <laughs> Where he starts playing and everyone in the audience just starts fist fighting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's out. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they didn't know how to process that. It looks like the closest thing to it is That's All Right by Elvis. Yeah. But other than that, just reading off kind of you know, on Spotify, I put in just 1954. And you have Mr. Sandman. I mean, just kind of think of how these songs go. Yeah, Mr. Sandman. Thank you, Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Earth Angel. That's Earth a, Angel. Again. Yep. Yep. I mean, they just went for the top hits when they made that movie. Uh, 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. 16 Tons and River Cooper coming. Is that it? No. No. What do you get? Another day. Yep. Oh, okay. okay. Another Only day, You by something. the Platters. Yeah, they're all more just vocal. Is that doo-wop? What, what was yeah. it called? Yeah. That? Is that yeah. the name it's for it? It's doo-wop. doo-wop. Yeah. 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 Like Dion and the Belmonts mm-hmm. were big into yeah. that for white boys anyway. And then still like some of that more um, country style stuff, you know, like older country yep. style. So that's, I have to ask you to do it. We have to play just a little bit of Rock Around the Clock. Um, Let's just okay. Another one is the Ballad of Davy Crockett. That's another one. Is on that the there. one I was thinking of? Davy, I think so. Davey yeah. Crockett. Yeah. Yeah. I got him. Still on Back to the Future. <laughs> Every damn one. Is it? Yes. Well, it's really? like 1955. It, yeah, if it wasn't, if it wasn't played. I, yeah. I've seen that movie so many times. If it wasn't played, it was on a it was on a sign or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Seriously. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. But you should right so join me home. We'll Even now it's a yeah. toe tapper, yeah. man. What what's funny is that that's their that was their definition of rock like rock like now it's rock you know? right and that's like that was rock like what is this yeah. girl with the bobby socks in the dress with the poodle on it yeah, yeah. devil those crazy rocking kids yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's iconic. I didn't. Now listen to this. Isn't that badass? Just on the spot. It's so good, man. Thanks, buddy. The rest of us are going to go down in history. See ya. <laughs> Barely known. <laughs> That's just uh, such a great song, man. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Well, after this, this conversation, you know, don't don't change Buddy's style at all. They want him to c- record four songs and get sent to Nashville. Um, Crandall spoke with <clears throat> Colonel Tom Parker about possibly taking Buddy on. Thank God he didn't, because we all know what he did to Elvis, right? I mean, he took like over 50% of Elvis's uh, everything just to gamble it away. Anyway, that's a whole different story, man. Thanks, Nashville, again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Or Memphis. We've got the perfect guy with yeah. us in studio From tonight Johnny, to be man. talking about this. Uh, next, he called Jim Denny, who had been the booking agent for the Grand Ole Opry, but had recently struck out on his own as an independent talent agent. He also felt that Buddy had potential and agreed to be his manager. True to his word, High Pockets Duncan relinquished all man- managerial authority, just as he said he would do if Buddy and the boys ever grew outside of Lubbock. So remember way back earlier when they mm-hmm. made that little pact? So he held true to that. Hmm. That's crazy. Even though Buddy was about to blow up, finally, he, like, his heart was in the right place. Hypothesis. Yeah, because he just verbally said that he would do that, right? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't really written. I don't think so. And, then, and even if it was, you know what lawyers can do. I mean, you could lawyer up and just get out of it. Yeah. In yeah. some way. So good on him. Yeah. Buddy was elated at the news, but there was one condition that was hugely disappointing. The studio wanted Buddy only, not Bob Montgomery. Buddy considered turning down the deal. Bob had been his musical partner for years at that point, and it was hard to imagine going on without him. However, to Bob Montgomery's credit, he urged Buddy to go for it, saying, this is your chance, you've got to take it. It was something he never thought would happen, but the Buddy and Bob trio with Larry Welburn broke up. It was a natural progression looking back. Buddy was the only one of the group who had grown outside the country music sphere and dabbled with R&B and rockabilly. However, now that he was going down his own path, he needed a new band. That's big of the guy, like you said, huge, because now it would be like he would say that and then later on come back and sue him. For a second guitarist, he turned to his old pal, Sonny Curtis, who at the time was arguably even better than Buddy on guitar. For a bass player, he quickly snatched up Don Guess, who he had played with before and was familiar with. Lastly, uh, was a drummer, and only J.I. Allison would do. This new group flowed together very well and very quickly, seeing as how they had all played together many times before. On December 7th, just five days after the telegram, Buddy, Sonny, Don, and J.I. drove back to Nesman Studios in Wichita Falls and recorded four songs. Love Me, Don't Come Back Knocking, I Guess I Was Just a Fool, and Moonlight Baby, which were promptly sent to the three major labels in Nashville, RCA Victor, Columbia, and Decca. Remember by this time Elvis was an all-out sensation and everyone was looking to cash in on the next version of the Rockabilly Singer. Paul Cohen from DECA seemed interested, although not overly, and offered Buddy a contract. It was barely that, though. He made no commitment to make him a star or develop him any further than the cost of a recording session. So it was just barely, you know. We'll let you record this thing, but they didn't guarantee him anything else. Still, though, Buddy and the guys were beyond thrilled to have their names on an actual contract and to be recording at an honest-to-God, genuine Nashville studio. But Buddy didn't want to show up dressed in his usual starch Levi's and pressed shirt, holding his now fairly worn down Les Paul gold top. He decided to approach his brother Larry, who he was very close with, and asked to borrow enough money for a new guitar and some new duds. Larry later recalled, and I quote, Buddy said that he knew good and well he could make it if he only had a decent guitar and some decent clothes. I asked him how much he needed. I thought he was going to say something like 50 bucks. He said, how about a thousand? <laughs> Keep in mind, that would be like asking for about $10,000 in today's money, because this was in like the, you know, mid-50s. Larry, always supportive of his brother and thankfully doing well in the tile business, got Buddy the $1,000. 
With the money, Buddy bought a whole case of new clothes, so gaudy, according to Larry, that he wouldn't have worn them to a bullfight. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> Among them was a red coat, a chartreuse sport jacket, and a pair of suede shoes. But most importantly was the guitar, and Buddy knew exactly what he wanted. He went to the Adair Music Store in Lubbock and passed 50 other guitars to grab a brand new sunburst solid body Fender Stratocaster. We talked about that early. Yes. That's kind of teased on that. Yep. yep. He knew the store owner and had played one in there before and had not stopped thinking about it since. $400 later, he was finally ready to take Nashville by storm. It was Wayne's World 1, the, the guitar in the case. It will be mine. Yeah. <laughs> No but stairway. That's the iconic sunburst wooden Fender Strat that he would play for the rest of his short life. That he would be iconic. You know, it's carved on his tombstone, for Christ's sake. Wow. Yeah. I can picture it. So the Nashville se- se- the Nashville sessions. Like I said, you're you're in a good yeah. <laughs> you're on a good one, Casey. Hit me with it. We have a guy in studio that's recorded in Nashville countless times, just in case anyone's wondering what the hell I'm talking about. So he's very well educated on this stuff. <laughs> Edumacated, <Yeah. laughs> if you will. Well put. Well put. On January 26, 1956, Buddy and the boys arrived in Nashville to make their mark on the music world. They were to record with Owen Bradley at the aptly named Bradley's Barn studio. Right away, every positive vibe the guys had about the upcoming experience was destroyed. <laughs> Owen Bradley was an established country music producer steeped in tradition and totally taken aback by anything other than a stand-up bass, a guitar, a banjo, and a fiddle. Yeah, that's not a good fit. It was terrible. It was a recipe for disaster. Also, Bradley took one look at the rest of the group and announced that he'd be bringing in his own session musicians to back Buddy as well. He brought in Grady Martin on rhythm guitar and Doug Kirkham on drums, who were supposedly annoyed at even being there when they looked at the young Texas musicians with disdain. And possibly worst of all was the fact that Bradley refused to let Buddy play his guitar and sing at the same time, as that was not the conventional recording practice in Nashville. Seeing as how that's the only way Buddy had ever performed, he now stood in front of his mic with his long arms dangling uselessly at his side, feeling as naked as the day he was born. You can Google pictures of Buddy Holly, and there's a picture of him doing that. He's, and it's the only one where he's not holding his guitar. He's in front of a mic studio uh, with his headphones, and his arms are just down. Joe's going to drop it on us that Buddy Holly invented air guitar. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he should have done out of spite. <laughs> Can't hold one. I'm going to pretend I got one. They probably would have been like, don't do your arms like that. It's distract. It's not country. <laughs> Instead of getting out of the guy's way and let him do what he's used to, exactly. It's so it's so silly. It said, "Don't change his style at all." And as soon as he gets there, they change everything. Yeah. Another disappointing aspect was the time crunch. The clock started at seven fifteen and stopped at ten fifteen, and what you got done in between that space was up to you. Is it still like that, or it can be? Yeah. Is yeah, it just a, a lot? Of, everyone's usually tracking in the morning and stuff. Those uh, session players, they've got two or three more sessions to go really after that yeah so it really is they like just knock it out and get out damn that's so are those guys paid by the session or by the hour or how's that work it's it's all dependent oh all depends so, yeah. on who who draws it up or whatever yeah, yeah. all right because i guess you could sandbag and be like oops i messed up you know if you're paid <laughs> hourly <laughs> can't get that solo dude you've yeah. been eight hours on this one so yeah. <laughs> yeah. well the, the good ones you know that knock it out try to get paid by the song because they can go in sure and knock a song out in five minutes so yeah yeah. Kind of like the guy on the Bill Haley one. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, with the solo on Bill Haley. It must have been because he was just like, he hit it and, and left. Yeah. 
and Casey is a session musician, by the way. So, like, like I said, he would know that. So it's kind of kind of perfect that he dropped in on this particular episode. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really good. That's perfect. Fate handed us a little. Uh, what is it called? Easter egg today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, there were a couple of positive notes, though. For one, the songs that had been submitted for Decca to select from, um, from them, two that had been written in collaboration between Buddy and a girl from Lubbock named Sue Parrish were actually chosen. One called Love Me and the other called Don't Come Back Knockin'. The other songs were a cover of Midnight Shift and an original written by Buddy's DJ friend Ben Hall named Blue Days, Black Nights. The other positive note is that Bradley didn't seem to interrupt Buddy's process or try to change his style once the session started. This resulted in the aforementioned Blue Days Black Nights turning out just as well as any of his later recordings. And actually, we should you should put Blue Days Black Nights on the... You already did, didn't you? So you've been mentioning these songs, and I've been throwing them in that playlist. Damn, you're I feel, We're like a team here. You're, I've been seeing your fingers go Oh, yeah. There. I'm clicking and dragging, man. Blue Days Black Nights is actually... Do you want to play just a second of it? Okay. I think we should because it's it's actually a really really good song and it's one that I don't know it d- doesn't get enough credit in Buddy's catalog. Blue days, black nights, blue tears keep on falling for you, dear. Now you're gone. Blue days, black nights, my heart keeps on calling. His voice is just freaking great. And you alone. Memories of you make me sorry. Isn't that great? I gave you reason to doubt me. But now you're gone. And I am left here all alone with the blue memories. I think of you. That's Buddy. Blue days, black nights. However, in the other three songs, you can really hear the awkwardness of the room. Buddy not having his guitar, outside and unfamiliar musicians, and the ticking time clock. It was all definitely not an environment conducive to creativity. Regardless, all four songs were cut by 1015, and the boys drove back to Lubbock, fairly convinced they were about to be stars. As Sonny Curtis later put it, and I quote, We were young and didn't understand what was going on. We thought... Once you had a contract, you were automatically rich and famous, and that's just how it went. Suddenly, there'd be money and Cadillacs and girls. How many musicians have found out that is not the case? <laughs> There's Cadillacs, but they're used. I remember in Ivan and I's and the girls. our first band in like 2002 or three. remember we sent our that song October to the radio? Oh, yeah. And then we called in like 50 times requesting it as different people i'm like hi my name's julie and i want to hear october by jubal king this was the uh early um (laughs) becomings of joe's impressions i believe i guess so (laughs) yeah and so they played the song they had a homegrown something they had a Uh i was on sunday night i remember it was a block where it was all local musicians Uh call i think it was homegrown Mm -hmm. and so we got them to play october and they played it and then the guys said, it's a really good song. I like that ending. But guys, don't be afraid to go to a real studio because we kind of recorded it. Just It was not a great recording. It was just like yeah. what we'd done at home. So, But I didn't care because they said they liked the actual song. Right. So that, I kind of felt like right then I was like, oh, oh, I hope we're ready for this because like it's about to happen. You know, like I was that stupid. 
But I was like, we just got played on the radio, you know? So you do have that feeling where you're like, oh my God, it's about to blow up. There's going to be paparazzi. <laughs> yeah, I quit my job. No. <laughs> I called my boss. Screw you, buddy. We just got played on the radio. <laughs> oh, I'm late. I'm leaving early, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that 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 was cool. But yeah, I felt like that, too. It's crazy. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case for them, either. The day after the guy's lackluster experience at Bradley's Barn, Elvis released the single Heartbreak Hotel. While Buddy waited, awaited for word from Nashville about which songs would be chosen as a single, he watched Heartbreak Hotel become the biggest song in America, topping country, pop, and R&B charts all at the same time. Elvis freaking ruled the landscape. It was number one on the country and western charts for 17 weeks straight and reached number three on the R&B charts. The folks at DECA were under no illusion that Buddy was capable of that same success, and after making him wait for several weeks, finally revealed that Blue Day's Black Nights would be the first official Buddy Holly single that would be released in April with Love Me as the B-side. They hadn't even taken the time to spell his name correctly on the contract, spelling it H-O-L-L-Y instead of H-O-L-L-E-Y. Too afraid to jeopardize or postpone the upcoming release, Buddy let it go, and thus would forever be imprinted on music history as Buddy Holly without the E. So that's how that came about. Ever the optimist, Buddy commemorated the release by tooling a fantastically intricate leather cover for his J45 Gibson acoustic guitar. It was a beautiful blue and black leather covering with the name Buddy Holly in large white capital letters on the body and also featured his initials in medieval calligraphy and tiny guitars on the strap. Like, remember, we said on the last episode, this guy could leather work like crazy. Yeah. Did I talk- did, how do you spell it? You spell it the... H-O-L-L-Y. Yeah, so he just embraced it. Mm-hmm. Just like Richie Valens was Ricardo Valenzuela. Oh, yeah. I mean, and they're like, no one's going to buy a record from somebody named that. You're Richie Valens now, you know. Just a few days after his first DECA recording session in Nashville, Buddy decided to check out another studio just 100 miles up the road in Clovis, New Mexico. It was called Norva Jack Studios and was owned and operated by a man who would go on to be the most controversial figure in the Buddy Holly story. And in my opinion, the reason Buddy Holly died, Norman Petty. Wow. I totally, 100%, it was because of Norman Petty that Buddy died. But we'll get to that in like eight episodes. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be a a long ride. Hey, that's what you do. That you keep them to the end, Joe. Good. The, the, the leather work on his guitar. I wonder if that's where Waylon's signature guitar, like that, would make I, sense. I wonder if he got oh, that because yeah. his his was, you know, leather worked. Yeah, and that was you know, Buddy totally took Waylon under his wing. Yeah, they lived. He lived with uh, Buddy and his wife in New York. Yeah, he yeah he was playing bass. Uh, we all know for Buddy whenever whenever he died. Norman Petty was born in Clovis, New Mexico in 1927 and was musically gifted from a young age. You'll know why we're talking about him as much as we are here in a minute. Uh, He became quite gifted at several instruments. Chief among them was the piano. Also, while growing up, he was exposed to many different kinds of music, such as classical, country, folk, pop, and Western swing. During his high school years, he worked at a local radio station where he learned a lot about the ins and outs of radio broadcasting and became familiar with the technical side of the business as well. At 18 years of age, he met a fellow musician named Violet Ann Brady, who just lived a couple of blocks down the street. 
V, as she was known, had a beautiful singing voice, was a classically trained pianist, and her uncle was a professor of music at the University of Oklahoma. The pair dated until Petty's military service in Norfolk, Virginia, and V's studies at OU were complete, after which the two were wed in 1948. Just a few months after their reunion, they recruited friend and guitar player Jack Vaughn and formed a group called the Norman Petty Trio. Keep in mind it is the late 40s, and although they were talented, the Norman Petty Trio was not blazing any new trails into the musical universe. Electing instead to play big band-type instrumental ballads, one would hear it like a wedding reception or a country club dance or something. Having said all that, the Norman Petty Trio would soon enter the studio and record a few fairly successful songs on the Columbia label in the mid-50s. The first was their cover version of a Duke Ellington song called Mood Indigo in 1954, and their second was a song of Petty's own composition titled Almost Paradise three years later. The latter song actually made quite a bit of money, first from their own version and again when Roger Williams covered the song and it gained a w- even more popular. It wasn't the Almost <laughs> Paradise. <laughs> we looked at each other at the same time. <laughs> No, see if you can find it. I don't, it's, it's not that one. Uh, <laughs> so that was in the 50s? I know. Yeah, 50s? yeah, yeah mid-50s. I, I, I wonder when the, like, the Beatles grew infatuation for them. Cause I, I, I've got it. You got this that later All on? about, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They actually, and it's a whole conversation. It was Elvis and Buddy Holly. I got you. And we've, we've, we've talked about it before, but it's the whole, like, my opinion is Elvis was like the greatest performer ever. But I feel like, personally... That Buddy Holly musically was in another universe. Like he wrote him most of his own stuff. He played his solo. You know, like musically, I don't know. Elvis was a beautiful man. <laughs> and he could sing like an angel and move and stuff. And dim hips. And dim hips. Yeah, yeah. But he was I don't secular. Know. Yeah. <laughs> you can't don't look at his waist. Don't look from the waist down. Now I could I could kind of see where the moms and dads are coming from there a little bit more. Than the, than the like dry Bill Haley in the comet. Yeah. Bill Haley, that guy, he's just like a big pudgy white guy. And he, he fashioned his hair into a big curl, like a fat baby curl yeah. on his forehead. He's like the most innocent looking guy ever. But I know some he's, mom. He sounds like his name. Yeah. <laughs> Name's Bill Haley. Insurance <laughs> salesman. Uh, I, I know some mom, or thousands of moms said, said, I know what rock around the clock really means. Yeah. I'm not going to have my son rocking around the clock. I'll tell you that much. People would say that now. Yeah. Well, that's true. Didn't he kind of look like Bob's big boy? Yes. He, exactly. <laughs> oh, people look up those images. We need to put those on our Twitter or something. I'll he, do it. I'll do looks, it. He's like a, just a pudgy kind of round white boy with that big fat baby curl yeah. right here. <laughs> he's your local supervisor. <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. Petty immediately decided to use the proceeds from the group's royalties to set up his own recording studio, not to find and record the next hit record for some hopeful shiny new voice looking for to get famous, but simply to have a home base from which he and the trio could record their own music without any outside interference, which is like everybody, every musician's dream probably. Yeah. You see, as Buddy and the Crickets had just learned in Nashville, studios in those days clocked you by the hour just about as strictly as a therapist. 
Petty also felt, even at the major recording studio provided by Columbia, that the sound and techniques used to achieve it were sloppy and offensive to his incredibly particular ear. The Petty family had been established in Clovis for a long while, and his mother already owned a service garage next to a store ran by his aunt Eula on West 7th Street. The store had actually closed down sometime earlier, and it was in this building that Petty built his studio, which he decided to call Norva Jack, named after the three members of his trio. He spared no expense and purchased state-of-the-art equipment. In fact, the reel-to-reel Ampex tape recorder he ordered was only the second one to be purchased for music recording ever. No, as much as I don't like this guy, he did have like a, a really good ear for music, and he did make a lot of Buddy's songs sound cool. He helped with, yeah. the, with the production, as much yeah. as I don't like him. And one good ear. He did. Listen <laughs> 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 like this. <laughs> The Ampex tape recorder, the first one had gone to uh, Les Paul, of all people. Whoa. And Norman Petty got the second. Les Paul invented a lot of stuff. Yes, he did. That people don't realize, I think. Yes. Lots. Yes. Do you, can you think of any offhand? Well, multi-track recording. Oh, okay. There's one. Yeah. Kyle Cook from Matchbox 20, the guitar player, he'd, they'd had some throw-together jam session, and, and he was there. Really? And he, he, he was like... Like even Kyle being like notable, great guitar player. <laughs> yeah, God. Like Whoa. He came up to him after and he's like, "How hey, you play good, son?" Or whatever. I was like, <laughs> sure. he was geeking out. I would geek. Yeah. Out oh, dude. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, it's crazy. He could be so famous, but then you'd still meet somebody that would give you that, you yeah, know, starstruck factor. Yeah, that's cool. I got starstruck when I met Theo Vaughn. Just I be- would too. Yeah, because I'd watched his special a hundred times, like. The punchlines from his jokes are like normal speak around our house. You know, it's like he's such a part. Like, we love the guy so much. And I've been listening to his podcast for a while. It was just crazy because we went to see his comedy. And then I literally ran from his show through the casino to the opposite side <laughs> to jump on stage with my band. And I had emailed him like two weeks before and said, uh, would you please come watch me after I watch you? Did he and he, you back? he emailed back. He's like, yeah, man, nice. bro, I'll be over there. And by God, he was like two songs in. I happened to look down and he's sitting by my wife Yeah, and she's going like, you know, pointing yeah. at him, like with her mouth open, like, oh my God. <laughs> and he's like, thumbs up. Most and, people that big don't even like, they don't even open their emails. It's like, you know, someone on payroll. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, That's Theo crazy. Vaughn is a real dude. Real dude. Yeah, nice. absolutely. And he not seems a, that way. He is. And he, it's not an yeah, act. Yeah, he was really nice. He, yeah. He sat through our whole show, which was about an hour. I think it was the last hour. And then I came down to the uh, area there and he hung out with us for like another 45 minutes. You know, and it was so cool because we he was sitting at our table, as were the opening comics, and uh, we were just talking, and I don't even remember what I said. It was probably all stupid because, like, I was pretty starstruck. And then, like, someone would come up and go, hey, can we have your autograph? And he would, like, slide his cell phone across. He's like, hey, man, watch this for a second for me. And he would walk over there and get his picture taken and then come back, you know, and... I don't know, I've said it before, but I was like, I was so tempted to try to open that phone and like the numbers he has. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I could have got sure. so many numbers. But anyway, I didn't touch it, Theo. No worries. Hey, this is Joe. I got... <laughs> this I got is the- reminding me of so many other stories. I got to come back and do this again. Yeah, you do. We I need got, to just come okay. back and just have yeah. an episode where we just talk to you about I have a similar stuff. story with Justin Long. Really? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. He was on a date with Drew Barrymore one night in Nashville. <laughs> Were you wow. there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. See, Casey's got some stories, guys. Which one of the Jeepers Creepers was, was the first one, right? Was, uh, he, he was in one and yeah. two. Yeah, the first one. He was in both. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Love Justin Yeah, Lee, me man. too. I mean, I probably picked one of his least famous movies. Sam, you got anything on that? Oh, yeah. Almost, oh, go Paul. Go, yeah, Let yeah, me yeah. Get, just shoot you a little bit right here. I think kind of the first solid body electric guitar was his. But he also, when he was a teenager, uh, 13, invented a flippable harmonica holder so he could play his uh, guitar and both sides of his harmonica. Bob, Bob Dylan says thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Um, and then along with, uh, like I said, multi-track recording, delay. No way. Reverb, slap, you know, like slapback, variable speed, uh, like all, all kinds of guitar effects. And <laughs> Jimi Hendrix came along and secular it. Yeah. <laughs> secular, lit it on secular fire. Secular my guitar pedals. <laughs> that is awesome, man. Mm-hmm. I didn't know was so he married to Mary Ford? Yes. Did it say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I used to have like one of the little tiny vinyls. Really? Of, of that. It was like they did an album together. Really? She must have played. It was Les Paul and Mary Ford. Dude, uh-huh. if you st- that would be worth a nickel or two if yeah. you still have that. I got it downtown in Salome. Really? One of the bomb and pop antique stores. Oh my counter. God, isn't that crazy? But that was like 15 wow. years ago. Yeah, that is crazy. The Ampex was developed in Germany and until Les and Norman Petty bought one had only been used by the U.S. military. Petty also built curved walls in his studio to ensure that there were no dead spots or distortion anywhere in the room. This guy was a total audiophile. No sooner had Petty finished his studio, he started to get requests for outside musicians to use it. It soon became apparent that there was much more money to be made by recording other artists than using the space strictly to record and promote the Norman Petty trio. That would drive me crazy, though. Like, you you couldn't utilize all the space. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the curb. Yeah. yeah, but I guess it did wonders well, yeah. for the sound. Of course, uh, yeah, it must have. The first recordings made by Norman at Norva Jack, other than his own, were country art music artists like Jimmy Self and the Sunshine Playboys, Jimmy and Dorothy Blakely, and last last but not least, a little known rockabilly style singer from Vernon, Texas, named Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. He recorded his first stuff there. Oh, wow. So yeah, so we were yeah, talking about Roy earlier. Yeah, that's awesome. Then, in late January of 1956, Petty got a call from a kid from Lubbock named Buddy, asking if his band could come try out the studio. The group was soon in Clovis and cut six songs with the hopes of convincing Decca to allow them to record the rest of their sessions there, rather than in Nashville. One being 100 miles away, and the other one being 1,000 miles away, literally. The songs recorded at Petty's studio in that first session were all written by Buddy. They were, Buddy, Won't You Come Out Tonight, I Guess I Was Just a Fool, because I love you, I'm going to set my foot down, I'm changing all those changes, and rock a rock So I kind of went through all these, and the one that kind of floated to the top as the best was I'm changing all those changes. And it is straight, pure rockabilly. So I don't know if you want to play a minute of it, uh, Sam. To me, this it was the best out of, out of all of those. And that was on DECA? Yes. I'm changing all those changes. Written by Buddy. It's a great song, man. I, I, I should have reconsidered all those things I said I'd do So now I'm changing all those changes that I made when I left you Still that heavy, heavy country I was wondering earlier, I wondered how, if, if uh, he ever came across like Bob Wills Or what his influence uh, with Bob Wills was Very swingy yep. Oh yeah that I made when I left you This is, it's so weird. Hiram Griffiths. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, he moved in. I don't know how in the hell he ended up there. Now that I look back, there was a trailer house kind of at the end of our road. And 
there was an old man that moved into it when I was a kid and I was riding my bike back and forth. I think I was like 13 or 14. I just started playing guitar and I saw him carrying a guitar in one time. He was really old. And so I stopped and we were talking on the porch. His name was Hiram Griffiths. And we went inside and that dude had like seven guitars lined up. And I'm talking like, like 60 strats and fifties Gibsons, like amazing. I didn't dawn on me at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And he had this beautiful old tube amp, like just, he had great stuff in there. And he sat down and just started going through all this amazing stuff. He taught me a lot of stuff. And he said that he played with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys uh, back in the 40s, I believe. And there was another group, too. I can't remember what it was. Um, Joe didn't realize how much tens of thousands of dollars and oh no, guitars and amps was sitting right in front of him. And what him. a legend yeah. this guy was. And right. I, t- I looked, I, so, you know, you ever have a, a memory and when you're older, you're, you're like, did that even really happen? Yeah. Or was he real? <laughs> so I looked him up and I found his obituary and he passed away in 2005 or something. I, I don't want to lie. It was, it was, it was in the two thousands and, uh, and yeah, in his obit, it talked about the bands he played with and it mentioned yeah. Bob Wills. And I was like, God damn, you know? Yeah. It, but it's so weird because, like, how did he <laughs> was end this up? before fact checkers? Yeah, <laughs> Snopes was not around. <laughs> but like, how did this guy end up in a little trailer house on a dead end dirt road in Oklahoma? Mm-hmm. It's oh, bizarre. Wow. I remember he told me his wife had died a few years earlier, and his kids yeah. all lived like I don't know. It's really, really weird. It, it was not too far fetched. Like everyone's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. You know? So I mean, if you just happen to return home, yeah. And you and you were like a little John Claude Van Damme that that found the samurai's house in one of those movies, you know. <laughs> Train me, I can be great. No, get out of here, kid. He did. He would play these. He play these blues riffs, and he would teach me like play these chords. That's and then, awesome. And then That's, he yeah. would do 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 do, and he would do all these little things, and and it was just super cool, Dang. man. Yeah. That's really That's cool. Really cool. That's it's a good a, story. It's. I don't think I've ever told that. It's finally yeah. one I haven't told before. Yeah. Uh, now he has five stories. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, I, of I think there's a lot of people that still live around even this area that are. That were somebody at once, yeah. Know, or st- still, I feel like there was maybe like Twin Oaks, Oklahoma, like Jimmy Perkins, really, maybe had a place there or something. Damn, at some point, like you said, everyone's got to come from somewhere. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, like, you're you're sitting in the studio with us right now, dude, <laughs> and you've been on like every late night TV show. You're on like 5,500 albums, session yeah. musician, like, and you're sitting here with us and a songwriter and a songwriter. So yeah, yeah. dude, that's like a a very good point. It's, yeah, what are you doing here? <laughs> I don't know. I gotta go home and Why are sleep, you? In my, <laughs> sleep in my mom's guest bedroom. <laughs> That's where we all go. That's right. <laughs> so yeah, uh, backing him were Sonny Curtis, Don Guess, and J.I. Allison. It wasn't actually Buddy who caught Petty's eye at first, though. Instead, it was Sonny Curtis. He even tried to hire Sonny to play in the Norman Petty Trio, but he turned him down after realizing the group only played slow, boring ballads like Honeysuckle Rose. Petty never cared for Sonny Curtis after that. Turns out Norman Petty did not like it when he failed to get his way, which is something Buddy Holly would learn later on. A little foreshadowing, as they call it. Nice. Buddy's new status as a signed DECA recording artist landed him and the boys a spot traveling with Fair and Young's Grand Ole Opry show, traveling to such fantastical faraway places as Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ooh. <laughs> Man. Yeah. 
The group left at the chance, and minus J.I. Allison, who was still in high school and couldn't get away from class, seriously, they set off on tour. They weren't allowed to ride the tour bus with the big country stars and had to instead follow behind in Buddy's parents' 55 Oldsmobile, but they made the best of it. To keep themselves awake on the long overnight drives, they'd tell each other ghost stories. Buddy had a particular knack for this, spinning creepy yarns about the mark of the beast and the book of Revelation. Sonny Curtis said that sometimes they'd work themselves up so much that no one wanted to ride in the back seat, and they'd all pile up in front. <laughs> We've all talked about the back seat. Wow. <laughs> the pay was $10 a day each, plus room and board, and their food while out on the road was covered Crazy. too. <laughs> even, even in today's money, that'll be You make about like... that now, don't you, Casey? <laughs> We give you ten bucks a day and a burrito. Yeah, somewhere three dollars a year. <laughs> That's per diem. The boys didn't even have a band name yet, so they quickly came up with Buddy Holly and the Two Tones. Even though they were billed as extra added attractions on the bill, the other bandmates remember Buddy riding on Cloud Nine throughout the tour. He'd order several glasses of water at restaurants, and after drinking them down to several levels, would ping on them with silverware and sing songs for the other customers. Buddy had a famous wild streak, too. One of the more memorable instances was one time in church when the pastor handed Buddy the offering plate, and I love Buddy Holly for this. This is like my favorite part of this whole damn thing. The pastor handed Buddy the offering plate and asked if he had $10 to put in, to which Buddy replied, you think I'd be here if I had 10 bucks? <laughs> I don't know. I just thought. True musician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, the touring helped to take his mind off the deafening silence from Decca. But the news he finally received was pretty depressing. Decca had put zero effort into promoting the single, and although Billboard magazine gave it favorable reviews, the final sales tally was a dismal 18,000 copies. It seems like right after those reviews, that's when you'd really want to hit it with mm. the promo, right? Yeah. I mean, to kind of piggyback on that and they didn't they put yeah. no promotional effort into it at all it's like yeah. what you invested money into the at least do that see if something will happen yeah i mean you make money too on it yeah well they did make money here's how much here's how much they made the three riders buddy ben hall and sue Parrish, were ultimately paid 225 dollars to split between them out of the out of those sessions his hopes of becoming the next big thing out of nashville had taken a hard hit one thing Buddy decided at the end of the tour was that his glasses had to go. He despised the publicity photograph of him in his half frames that had been used to promote his first single. He'd even tried playing without them a few times on the Grand Ole Opry tour, but was so blind he couldn't see the audience or his fellow musicians. The very next day, after finishing the tour, May 14th, he went to his eye doctor and ordered contact lenses. He paid 125 bucks it back then yeah for a box of hard incredibly uncomfortable glass lenses that he was ultimately only able to wear about 10 minutes each day it seems that buddy was destined to wear glasses although he had not yet gotten his iconic black rims that was yet to come and that is the end of part three would buddy holly get lasik Ooh, he would you know, I know he would. He got his teeth fixed. He like he got the grill fixed. He got everything, man. He was ready to be he a would, handsome rock star. Yeah. yeah, he would have gotten LASIK for sure. Unless he was like super big and you know, like maybe you just wear the glasses as kind of a like the iconic no, look. Yeah, yeah, like no prescription or whatever. Well, other bands, like Rivers, uh, Cuomo, Cuomo, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Elvis Costello, uh, styled a lot after Buddy Holly. There was a lot of people that that copied his style. 
But we'll get to that. It was actually the Everly Brothers that suggested like great band, dude. I I re fell in love with the Everly Brothers during this. That was like all I listened to for about a week, man. Yeah. So we're getting into them. uh, Oh yeah, they they were very close friends of buddies. One of them was actually a pallbearer at his funeral. Okay. Yeah. So Phil and Don Everly were super close with Buddy. Wow. Uh, Yeah. I mean, talking about you know, there we go. Oh, wake up, little Susie. Yeah. Listen to these harmonies. Amazing. That bass player had not got secular yet. And this is devil music, right? Yeah. The whole song talks about they just fell asleep and now they're scared people are gonna think they fooled around. Yep. What I'm gonna tell your friends when they say Ooh la la. See? So stop that for a minute. They're like, oh shit. We don't want our friends to think anything foul was afoot. And these days you'd be like, ah, smash that ass all night. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You would bust out of there just like, guess what I did? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I like Cardi B. (laughs) That's the difference now. So so that very thing happened to me when I was a teenager. You fell asleep with your girlfriend? She fell asleep at my house. We were supposed to take her home by like midnight. But But what's funny is her mom and dad were just like piece of crap people, really. And so when my dad walked in and we were, we were really, we really slept. I promise. There was no intercourse? No, we fell asleep at like... (laughs) 11 something and I never took her home and my dad walked in there at like 5 in the morning and he said I think we should we should call her mother and I was like oh yeah good dad she's really good <laughs> and the mom tried to act oh I'm very disappointed and, and on the way home I won't say her name but she was like yeah my mom doesn't care at all <laughs> and then that kind of gave me a little message hey maybe I shouldn't date this girl she can just she oh. can just stay all night and we're like you know she's like 17 that's not oh no i i had a girlfriend once just for a minute and i went over to her she let her and her mom lived in a, an apartment building like yeah. a low-income apartment building and i went in there and we went into her room and i was she, she was laying on top of me and we were making out and her mom just walks in there and goes i won't say her name we'll make up a name and just goes julie don't forget to, it was like a chore or something. It's like, don't forget your laundry. You got to get it out of there because I got to do mine. And just walk back out. Yeah. And she's like, okay. And then just started kissing me again. And I was like, whoa, are we in trouble? And she's like, no, it doesn't care. You know? So I was just like, damn. All right. <laughs> yeah. But then years later, I was like, man, it's like that song. I'd like to have that one back. Yeah. <laughs> I- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't you, know you don't know what you got till it's gone. There's a thousand songs about it. You guys could have exactly engaged that in title. Actually, <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, wasted yeah, days, exactly. wasted nights. Yeah, <laughs> you could have done every page in the Kama Sutra, and we no have, one cared. We just have to dodge my parents, not hers. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's. All. Yeah. Speaking of man, like Freddie, Freddie freaking Fender. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This song goes out to a little buddy of mine named Ivan. Oh. you missed that opportunity, buddy. <laughs> I have left waste the night. <laughs> Day wasn't wasted though. <laughs> For you don't belong to me. Your heart Freddy Fender. Gotta love. Yeah, so we'll end it on that note. 
Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, part three, Buddy Holly. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying this because we literally have about five more to go. Yeah. Uh, that's true. But uh, you know what? It's Buddy was an interesting guy, and this is all uh, very fascinating stuff. So just keep keep riding with us. Yeah, good job, Joe, on the research. I'm yep. loving this. Good and job. thanks to Casey for hanging out with us tonight. Yeah. Yeah, y'all can't see it right now. They're both wearing Buddy Holly glasses. Yes, we are. They are. <laughs> and I had a Buddy Holly t-shirt on, I think, last time, too. So, <laughs> Well, all right, guys. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time. Good night. Let me tell you about some fellas I know named Ivan, Sam, and Joe. They got themselves a little podcast, you know. And they talk about everything under the sun they find interesting, spooky, or fun. They sure ain't trying to impress no one. The remedy to too much time on your hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. They talk about killers, monsters, and cults. French mates from hell, disappeared folks. Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes. They try to make every story extra nice by adding their own ginger spice. Not one time or two, but thrice. The remedy to too much time on you hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell Cause there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell Cause this old world's as weird as hell But hell, even if nobody listened You know they'd maintain a fine disposition Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission Remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of mantis The remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to 